This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Ariel Ezraki about the distinctive DNA of European competition law. What happens is that we often hear arguments that suggest that competition law is a very stable discipline based on very clear parameters, almost mathematical in nature. Whereas in reality, competition law in all jurisdictions is a construct, a political construct that is using economics in order to try and define its boundaries. But from A to Z, it is subjected to norms and to values that are national. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Social concerns are increasingly common strains in the public speeches of competition agency officials. So just what are the social values that underpin competition policy and antitrust? And are they distinctive to individual jurisdictions? Or is there a universal economic DNA to this important body of law? We're fortunate in this episode to be joined by Ariel Ezraki, Professor of Competition Law at the University of Oxford, talking us through the values that shape European competition law how they inform its objectives, and in particular, how they affect the design and enforcement of the law in the face of challenges posed by the digital economy. And for those of you wondering, yes, the recent decision of the Bundeskartland in relation to Facebook's data practices most certainly comes up. But before we got there, Ariel reflected on why long-standing debates about the proper goals and scope of competition law have been reinvigorated in recent times. It's a really good question. And in many ways, you are absolutely right that we're dealing with the same themes for many years now. What is competition law about? What is an antitrust problem? But I guess what happens was that a real change in market dynamics, digitalization, Uh, rise in market power, creation of gatekeepers, so many changes around us suddenly revealed a certain gap between what we thought was a common DNA of what competition law is about, which is relatively similar across all competition agencies and competition regimes, to a reality where suddenly we see differences. We see enforcement actions in some jurisdictions and we don't see any elsewhere. And the argument against or in favor starts to sound like you're getting it wrong. Your competition laws are not on point. And this, I think, brought back up the whole debate of what competition law is about. Yes, I think you're right. The new competition dynamics in the digital economy are raising or reviving questions about the normative scope of the law and enforcement in this field. Well, let's go right back to the beginning, perhaps. In Europe, competition norms are sometimes said to have constitutional or quasi-constitutional status. For our non-European listeners, 
Can you help us understand just what are the constitutional foundations of European competition law? In Europe, competition law is found in the Treaty on European Union and the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. And competition law here forms part of the wider matrix of values and norms that are advanced by the European Union. And as such, it is slightly different from what you might find in other jurisdictions. First, by its constitution nature, it is used as a vehicle that can advance the ultimate goals of the Union. For example, the idea of a single market, which is something that is quite unique to Europe. And in addition to that, the provisions in Europe, the way that they have been applied in case law and by the Court of Justice and by the General Court, what we see is that the court weaves into the competition rational quite a lot of values that are European values, that are norms. And in many ways, this is what makes European competition law very different. And this is also what reminds us sometimes that competition law, like any law, is a national construct, is a social construct, a result of political negotiation, uh, legislation, and therefore is a reflection of the norms and values of each jurisdiction. And those values that underpin the European Union as a whole, they're very broad and disparate. They would include things like promoting the well-being of its peoples, sustainable development, full employment and social progress. So you're saying, as I understand it, that when we think about the goals of competition law, we have to think about it as one instrument to advance these much broader values and norms. Is that right? So at its core, this is exactly the argument that you can make. We have non-discrimination, tolerance, justice, solidarity. But of course, what happened with time was that this is not a workable benchmark for competition. No. So competition law in its application has been narrowed. So although it is used to form part of a wider legislative matrix that advances all those goals, it is not used as an instrument that will advance all of them. Absolutely not. So what are the instruments that competition law does serve? At the core of it in Europe, as you will find in all other jurisdictions, we of course have consumer welfare. This is actually interesting because the treaty speaks of consumer well-being. And earlier case law speaks of consumer well-being. And it was only Commissioner Mario Monti that at his time imported the notion of consumer welfare in order exactly to narrow the scope of competition law. But we also have fairness, which is a norm uh, that you will find in the competition provisions in the treaty. We have, of course, market integration, which is an example of us using the competition provisions to advance something which is very particular to Europe, is a political agenda. But what the Commission has done is to explain how there is an economic and efficiency rational at the heart of market integration. So again, we try to communicate those values using a narrative which fits more easily into the general competition narrative that we're all familiar with. Clearly, it's evident that there is pluralism here in terms of the norms and values that are being pursued. And pluralism necessarily involves trade-offs. 
in the context of those trade-offs, one has to be cognizant of essentially the political negotiation and compromise that must go on to determine which goal or which value should be given primacy at any given time or in any given context. You've got a thesis for this, Ariel, that's really interesting. You talk about competition law being sponge-like as absorbing the context in which it has to operate. Can you just briefly elaborate on that metaphor? Yes, the idea was an attempt to highlight the real nature of competition law. What happens is that we often hear arguments that suggest that competition law is a very stable discipline based on very clear parameters, almost mathematical in nature. Whereas in reality, competition law in all jurisdictions is a construct, a political construct, that is using economics in order to try and define its boundaries. But from A to Z, it is subjected to norms and to values that are national. Those norms and values define the scope of the law, but also affect the level of intervention. After all, the law is not just the written word that we see in the legislation. The real impact comes to what is it that you're doing with it. And the sponge reflects something which is very national in nature, anchored in your view as to the ability of the market to correct itself, your understanding of what is the role of competition law, whether competition law should be about fairness, about consumer welfare, about total welfare, about distribution of wealth in society. And different jurisdictions will have very different ideas as to what exactly is the positioning of their competition law. So although we all speak the same language, which is really misleading, we all say consumer welfare, we all say something like monopolization or abuse. In fact, these terms reflect a certain depth, which may be quite different in different jurisdictions. They get translated through the context in which they actually have to operate. Yes, and it's even more than that, because I think that once you understand the idea of the sponge, what it tells you is that those that speak about the purity of antitrust enforcement are often just unaware of the extent to which their own competition regime is subjected to all the elements of the sponge. So let's talk a bit more about that argument that grounding competition law in economic theory keeps it pure, so to speak, from social concerns and political compromise. If I understand you correctly in your writing, Ariel, you don't discount the importance of economics itself in competitional design and enforcement. Indeed, you say it acts like a membrane around the competition law core. What does that actually mean in practice? What do you see as the role of economics in this area? I think there is a clear consensus that economics is vital for competition law enforcement. No one would consider arguing differently. The issue is slightly different. First, what is the role of economics as a membrane? Economics is what we're using in order 
to stabilize the sponge. So if you think that the sponge is a political construct, economic rational is what helps us bring into it something that is quantifiable, something that helps us identify the adequate level of intervention, something that helps us understand what could be pro-competitive or anti-competitive. So economics is of extreme significance in this process. But even economics is not stable in itself. We all understand that. We know from practice that in any dispute, you will have lawyers on both sides and you'll have economists on both sides. We know that economic models, depending on the base assumptions, might yield radically different outcomes. And those assumptions are an attempt to approximate reality, yet they never do match reality exactly. So a lot depends on what is it that you find more convincing. And even when we find a resolution, even if you find yourself dealing with an outcome, if you look, for example, at the Amex judgment, it's not that you have an overwhelming decision in one way or another. What you have, in essence, is something which is much less neat. You have something where you have a real controversy, even within the court, as to what might be the approach. But still, with all of those difficulties in mind, and with our understanding that economics is not a norm-free discipline, it is still vital in order to give us consistency, in order to give us some stability to the discipline. Now, this is the part of economics as a membrane that restricts the sponge. In addition to that, what we have is another question, which is to what extent economics determines the scope of the law. Is it the case that I only decide what is pro-competitive or anti-competitive based on economics? And in other words, I am narrowing the scope of the sponge. I'm not just limiting effects, but I'm literally condensing it and condensing it to only reflect what I can quantify? Or is it the case that economics is used in order for me to get a better sense of what it is that I'm trying to do? But I appreciate that there are some norms that are not necessarily part of the basic economic toolbox. Illustrative, it seems to me, of the thesis you're making about the important but limited role for economics, at least in the European competition law context, is the recent decision of the Bundeskartelland against Facebook's practices of collecting and combining user data across various services, a case that is attracting much comment. Now, some, particularly in the US, are questioning whether that decision can be justified on economically informed competition or consumer welfare grounds. Is this case a particularly good illustration of the sponge at work? So what do we have in Europe? We have a competition law that absorbed certain values, absorbed values of fairness, absorbed values that include us looking at exploitation, whether you are exploiting consumers either through pricing or quality. And with this in mind, when you have this in your toolbox, you can now look at what happened in the Facebook decision. 
Because what you need to do is not to try and analyze it using a sponge from another jurisdiction. Let's take a sponge that is relatively narrow in scope that says, all I measure is one, two, three. Or for example, I do not measure exploitative types of abuse, only exclusionary abuse. This may be true to one jurisdiction. It is just not a reflection of what other jurisdictions are considering to be a competitive harm. This is why, by the way, before we go into the Facebook decision, this is why when you hear discussions in the U.S. about hipster antitrust, and people immediately say, oh, how does this relate to Europe? If you understand that we have different regimes, you understand why the two discussions are completely unrelated. Because in the US, what you had is a regime that evolved over time. Over the years, and especially in its modern manifestation, US antitrust law has been relatively narrowed, both in its scope and its actual application. And what you see now is a wave in the US of scholars, politicians, and interested parties arguing that the U.S. might have erred in its approach, that possibly they failed to apply antitrust law in instances in which it is required. That discussion cannot be implanted in Europe because to begin with, in Europe, you have a much more stable and wider discipline. You don't have that problem of a narrow regime that now has to be shaken in order to maybe adapt to changing market reality. So people that say what you're doing in Europe is a manifestation of hipster antitrust simply misunderstand what European competition law is about. What they do is project their own law onto other jurisdictions, and therefore they say, how could you reach a certain outcome that is not in line with what I would consider to be a competition program? That analysis does have potentially quite significant implications for those who favour international convergence in this area. I want to come back to that, Ariel, but if we just return briefly to the Facebook decision, yeah, let's do Facebook. would you say that that is an illustration of German competition law having absorbed, like a sponge, data protection or privacy concerns coming out of the wider normative matrix you referred to earlier? The Bundeskartellamt decision, first of all, reflects a European focus or possible focus on exploitation. So to begin with, what it is using is mostly the idea that we have exploitation of consumers rather than exclusionary abuse. So this is the first reason where you will see suddenly a gap emerging between this being an issue in Europe and possibly not being an issue elsewhere. But what the Bundeskartellamt has done, which some other member states might find to be somewhat controversial, is focusing on an aspect of data-driven model, an aspect of privacy, and using that in order to assess whether there has been an exploitation. So you could take the European version of exploitative pricing, let's say excessive pricing, and if you apply it to data usage, 
what you would argue is that Facebook, according to that decision, possibly have required users to provide it with excessive data. It basically created a framework in which users are literally obliged to give their consent for Facebook using data from multiple sources and joining it together. And that, according to the Bundeskartellamt, has an exploitative nature. And this makes sense from a few European perspective. You can build a theory of harm. It is still a controversial theory of harm because it is based on data and privacy rather than on what we tend to see more often, which are price-centric theories of harm. So for the purposes of an exploitative abuse of dominance in European competition law, is it the case that there doesn't have to be shown to be any harm or likely harm to competition? What's the link to competition here? Both Articles 101 and 102 include provisions that target unfair selling or buying practices. The element here is based on exploitation, you being exploited. This you can argue... Because of an asymmetry of bargaining power, is that right? Well, this will often be the case if we think about excessive pricing, the monopolist is able to charge higher prices. Now, this is a reflection of a certain norm, a European norm that sees that as a competitive problem. If you look at it from a jurisdiction where you don't have exploitation as a competition problem, then this might look odd. And of course, we're familiar with the US approach that when looking at excessive pricing, would consider this to be an issue because the market is likely to correct itself. But once you appreciate that in Europe, it is within our laws, a violation, then the question becomes a question of enforcement priorities. Do you enforce or not? And here, if you look across Europe, you will see different attitudes. In some jurisdictions, you will find exploitation to be, let's say, low on the enforcement agenda because of the difficulties that it raises. And in other jurisdictions, you will find more cases of exploitative abuse. In those jurisdictions that are more comfortable with exploitative abuse, you will have cases of exploitative price usually where the competition agency assumes that there is a certain market failure and the high prices will not invite an entry. Now, if you take these conditions and you apply them to the Facebook case, from communications that we have from the Bundeskartellamt, what we understand at this point is that the Bundeskartellamt is saying, A, Facebook dominates the market of social media, some sort of a market where you have rich experience. This is something Facebook disputes. But the Bundeskartellamt says, first, the market is relatively narrow. In that market, you hold a dominant position. Customers have no choice. They are basically locked in with your service because of network effects. And because of that, you are able to demand excessive data or you are able to downgrade the quality of the service that you provide by downgrading privacy. Either way, this is an exploitative rationale that you have at the heart of the decision. And that, according to the Bundeskartellamt, is something 
that is anti-competitive, harms consumers, harms the users. So it's fairly evident to me from your useful explanation of this category of abuse that underpinning the concept of exploitation is that broader value of fairness that you've mentioned several times. And you've acknowledged that in other places, fairness and competition are not combined in the same sentence. I think that's in part because concerns for fairness mean affording competition law a role in distributive justice. And many would question both the wisdom and the practicality of using competition law as a distributive tool when there are other policy instruments specifically intended for this purpose. What's your response to that argument? I'm sure you've heard it before. Fairness as a value is quite a challenging value for any competition enforcer. Because as an abstract form, you can push and pull it in various directions. Now, the European Commission has made it clear. First of all, fairness does not undermine the idea of competition, which is you might lose the process of competition. You might be pushed out of the market. That is not unfair. That is just reality. That's competition. What might be unfair? If you look, for instance, at Article 102, unfairness would be the imposition of high selling price or unfair trading conditions. This is the type of unfairness. So you have cases where what you have is a specific approach or a specific case where we look at unfairness. And here it is relatively easier because you're dealing with something which is easily formulated. You have margin squeeze, for example, where we speak about the unfairness of the spread between wholesale and retail price. Of course, we have excessive pricing where we speak about the unfairness of the price. The question that has dominated the debate in recent months has been whether fairness goes beyond that. Whether fairness as a concept is something that could change the scope of competition law. And here, what you have are statements from the commissioner where fairness as a value is not something that on its own creates a theory of harm, a workable theory of harm. So we should distinguish between using the term fairness to describe a norm, which is a European norm, describing a norm that might affect our approach towards cases and the ethos of European competition law, and then fairness as an intervention benchmark, which is much more narrow in scope and is found in Article 102 when it comes to very specific types of abuse, or found in Article 101 when we deal with exemptions and we try to assess how to measure possible benefits from one of the undertakings. Certainly that role for fairness as a norm underpinning the law in this area seems to have been linked by the European Commissioner and other high-level officials to the perceived need to preserve or engender greater trust in markets nowadays. We're living in a time, of course, where market ideology itself is under challenge and some see as unhealthy, if not dangerous, populism on the rise as a result of that. Do you agree that, at least in the European context, the increasing emphasis on fairness, the social side of competition law, as Jean-Claude Juncker referred to it, is really valuable in shoring up the legitimacy 
of policies and laws to protect competition? I find this to be a challenging question, and I'll tell you why. As a norm, I think fairness is immensely valuable. And it is true that fair competition cultivates trust in markets. There's no doubt about it. The difficulty is whether that in itself should be an intervention benchmark, and I doubt it. And I don't think that the commission itself would have advanced this as an intervention benchmark. So we have to appreciate this being a value and distinguish it from whether this is an intervention benchmark on its own. Let's talk now a bit more about some of the other specific goals to competition law. You've mentioned consumer welfare and the attempt to rein in the broader idea of consumer well-being that's reflected in the treaty itself. You've also mentioned market integration and you've mentioned efficiencies. What about the question of an effective market structure? You'll be aware, as many of our listeners are, that in the United States, the movement you've referred to as hipster antitrust is calling for competition law to become or perhaps revert to a more structural approach. Are there signs of that in European competition law? The focus on effective competitive structure in Europe is something that we had for many years. What it literally say is that competition law is designed to protect not just the immediate interest of individuals, but also the structure of the market and competition as such. And in various cases, this basically was clarified not to be protecting competitors for the sake of keeping them on the market, but it is protecting as efficient competitors from being subjected to, for instance, exclusionary abuse that is pushing them out of the market. What I want to understand is if one of the benchmarks for intervention in Europe is the preservation of an effective competition structure, putting aside for the moment how one would assess what is effective or not, does that mean that there could be conduct that is found to be anti-competitive without there having to be also found actual harm to consumers arising out of that? Is it assumed that concentration or market power or dominance as such is a violation of competition law? So we have two parts to your question. First of all, we need to understand that in Europe, consumers is a relatively large group. It is the users of the products, but it is also the producers that use the products as an input. It is also wholesalers, retailers. It is also important to appreciate that in Europe, you can have a violation without directly harming consumer. Right. That's important. So what we see is that when you protect the structure of the market, there is an assumption that you indirectly also protect consumers. Because when competition, the process of competition is damaged, consumers will also be eventually hurt. So this is the idea of maintaining an effective competition structure. And you are right when you say that when we have 
a competition regime that aims to protect not only the interests of competitors and consumers, but also the market itself and competition, the dynamic as such, it does give you a somewhat wider instrument or a more flexible instrument. And in the context of the digital economy, uh, this is certainly interesting because you could find quite a lot of instances where what you will see is distortion on the market, but you are yet to see immediate effects on consumers. So that benchmark gives you some sort of an independent mandate to intervene, which is detached from the direct effect on consumers. How does that tie in, though, with concerns about intervening in these fast-moving markets and in a way that would distort, if not possibly undermine, the processes of innovation? Do you have any concerns about the European approach having that effect? The question whether what we might have is a chilling effect on innovation is a valid question. And that is a question that all competition agencies, when they intervene, will look into. Because what is one of the main risks that we have, of course, with competition law is that while we try to do our best to protect competition, we might actually chill the process of competition and create more damage than benefit. Now, much of this will depend on your view of the market. And this is where I think, again, you will see varying views depending on the jurisdiction and depending on the market realities. In some jurisdictions, I think we tend to see greater trust in the market. We tend to see greater trust that disruptive innovation is behind the corner and therefore there is no real need for intervention. In some other jurisdictions, what you see is maybe a more skeptical approach. People really wonder whether markets already tipped in a certain direction and therefore we shouldn't wait any longer and some form of intervention is necessary. Look at the US and the Assistant Attorney General, Mahmoud Rahim, in recent speeches, he seems to indicate a much greater belief in the market. He speaks about the market ability to correct itself. He speaks about the risk of chilling innovation. Move to the Bundeskartellamt in Germany, you might hear concerns that are more in line with the market has reached a level of concentration that requires us to deal with exploitation because we don't expect a new entrant. We don't expect some sort of a disruptive innovation to resolve the problem. And if you look at the European Commission or any other jurisdiction, you are likely to find uh, slightly different approaches as to the ability of the market to correct itself. I think that it's important to understand that one of the interesting things that we witness now in the context of the digital economy is how our understanding of the markets have changed the views on the ability of the markets to correct itself. And when you're asking yourself, why is it that we see this inconsistency? Part of it is the law. Part of it is our understanding of what happens on the market. Is it, for instance, that you think that data is a resource that is accessible to all and is not unique? Or is it that you believe that data is so unique that at some level, once you obtain big data, 
and you are the gatekeeper that controls it, you gain the certain advantage that others require. I mean, your views on one, just one question out of hundreds will impact significantly on your view when it comes to intervention. Your view as to innovation will impact on your appetite when it comes to intervention. And regardless of the law, if you believe that we have killer mergers and we have innovation kill zone, that will naturally lead you to be much more careful when it comes to merger control. If, on the other hand, you believe that this has no real evidence, then naturally you will look at mergers and you will say, I see no problem here. Innovation is just around the corner. So would you agree that in the face of the challenges posed by the digital economy, we're likely to see more international divergence in the approach taken to antitrust and its enforcement? Or do you think the divergence was always there based on these different ideologies you've outlined, but it's just being brought into stark contrast now? Whether you witness system friction or not often depends on whether you have a case that triggers it. So in the area of mergers, we all remember G. Hanwell or Gordon Donald Douglas. We remember cases that suddenly when you have the risk of conflicting decisions or you had conflicting decisions, system friction was obvious. And what we see now is another disruptor, which is changing market dynamic. And here, I believe that that, again, will bring out system friction. And it will bring it out because of the differences in values, the differences in the law, the differences in your belief as to the power of competition and the dynamic of competition, and also to the extent to which you as an enforcer are intellectually captured in one direction or another. We don't operate in a vacuum. We understand that corporations are being extremely active on both sides trying to convince as many people as they can that whichever policy promotes their commercial interest is the right policy. So when you bring all of this together, what you have is a relatively unstable environment, an environment where you are likely to see some friction, an environment where you are likely to see differences in views, either friction between agencies or frictions between let's say, certain companies and certain agencies. And this is quite interesting because from an international perspective, we might find that, for instance, you will have users in Germany that benefit from greater privacy than users in the US. You might have, for instance, some jurisdictions, let's take Australia, where when you buy online, drip pricing is illegal. And you go to another jurisdiction and you buy online from the same provider, and you will be subjected to drip pricing. So what you see is that there is a slightly different approach, both in terms of enforcement, but also in terms of regulation. But all of it stems from a different approach toward changes in dynamic, toward our understanding of what is the role of the state. You can take it to the core and ask yourself, is there a role of the state in protecting customers, citizens, or should we just make an assumption that citizens are always rational 
and they will always be the champions and they will always be treated like kings because if not, then obviously the invisible hand of competition will come to the rescue and someone else will come into the market. So I think what happens in this dynamic environment is that you start to see more and more of these inconsistencies. Maybe that's all they are, inconsistencies. They don't necessarily have to amount to friction, but they do reveal differences in ideology, both at the legislative and the enforcement levels. I want to round up by asking you a bit about some more practical considerations. If we allow for the fact that the law will have pluralistic goals and it's going to absorb non-economics-related values, whether they be fairness or privacy or even democracy, some will argue that that will necessarily mean the law can't be transparent or consistent, objective and even accountable. I'm sure, again, you've heard that argument, Ariel. What's your thinking on that? I think it is true that when you have plural goals, it does create a greater likelihood for some sort of inconsistency, and it does complicate the application of the law. How do competition agencies approach that? By trying to inject as much as possible an economic rational into those goals. You speak about fairness, you inject economic rational to that. You speak about privacy, you don't actually ask, are they happy or not when it comes to privacy? Just did we have a quality degradation. You try to run those arguments through benchmarks that are transparent and are workable. But it is true that if you were to move to the easiest benchmark to use, you might just go with a very narrow economic benchmark. Even within economic discipline, you will go with a very fine-tuned economic benchmark. And you will say, unless I prove that, that there's no competition problem. What you gained is certainty, subject to us understanding that even there, economic is not a value-free discipline. So, of course, even there you can have several outcomes because we understand that this is just the way we model when it comes to economics. But still, you will have much more certainty. The question you then need to ask yourself is, is that actually protecting or serving the purpose for which the law was enacted? Or did I narrow it to such extent that in a way I drove the law into irrelevance? Now, on that spectrum, we can find many points. And I guess different jurisdictions will position themselves in various places. Different jurisdictions probably also have an image of where they are, which might differ to some extent to where others think they are on that spectrum. But what you can is go to the extreme and say, we protect everything. And I don't think there is any competition agency that does that. Or go to the other extreme and say, I protect only what I can measure. And the standard is as high as one can imagine. And somewhere on that spectrum in between, you can probably position all the competition regimes. And what they do is all of them try to have workable benchmark that can be administered. All of them are subjected to judicial review. And therefore, I don't think that there is a risk of lack of transparency, even not a risk of inconsistency, because once you establish a certain benchmark, you then apply it, hopefully, in a consistent manner. 
So you can look, for instance, on your choice as to what is a per se violation, what is an object violation, what is considered to be an abuse. Once you establish these benchmarks, then the industry can adjust accordingly. Now there's a timely reminder that the way in which competition rules are designed and enforced depends on values and belief systems deeply embedded in the legal, social and political fabric of each individual jurisdiction. Values and beliefs that relate to the way in which markets work or should work and the role of consumers and the state in markets. No more is this so than currently as markets are being transformed in ways and on a scale not seen since the Industrial Revolution. Next on Competition Law, we hear more about the role of consumers. This time, in discussion with Professor Jeannie Patterson from the University of Melbourne. Jeannie's focused on how digitization and specifically artificial intelligence is affecting consumers and how laws and regulations should respond. Until then, you can find links to some of Ariel's recent work in the show notes and other resources and links always at competitionlawlore.com. Don't forget to help others find the podcast by sharing it or leave us a rating and review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.